Hello, Open Your Hymnal listeners. Zach and I are pleased to announce our first ever listener-driven episode. We receive lots of questions from our listeners, and we want to produce a show that helps answer as many as possible. So what we need from you is your questions. Ever wonder how hymnals are made? Want to know the most used liturgical songs in the United States today? Want to know how our show gets produced? Or more about representation, or intercultural music, or chant, or praise and worship music, or a thousand other things? Well, here's your chance to find out. If we don't have the answers, we'll do our best to find them. You can submit your questions through our website, openyourhymnal.com. Simply click on the Listener Questions tab and you can send us your question. We'll produce the episode within the next few months and your question might be included. If your question is picked, we'll do our best to get your voice on the show. We can't wait to receive your questions and thanks for participating. Welcome back, Open Your Hymnal listeners. This is Matt Reichert, and we've got a special episode for you today. An interview with Marty Haugen, recorded live as a part of a Lenten mission series Marty, Zach, and I did in March of 2019 when we were at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Canton, Ohio. Today you'll hear from the second of our three-night program, a conversation with Marty about several of his most well-known compositions. We were so blessed to spend time with the parishioners of St. Michael's exploring the importance of congregational song and liturgical music. We'd like to thank Justin Hike and Libby Sexton for hosting us, and in a special way, we'd like to dedicate this episode to Father Don King. After a long career as a priest and parish pastor, Father King is retiring this weekend. We thank you, Father King, for your work and your witness, for your support of good liturgy and good music, and we wish you all the best in this new adventure. Here we will take the wine and the water, here we will take the bread of new birth. Here you shall call your sons and your daughters, call us anew to be salt for the earth. If you would like to find out more about bringing Open Your Hymnal to your parish, you can visit our website, openyourhymnal.com. Click on the Contact Us link and send us a message. We'd love to bring the show to your community. And so, without further ado, we'll let the good folks at St. Michael's do the honors. Please open your hymnal. If you would please stand and greet those around you. Introduce yourself to someone new, perhaps. The first song we are going to sing is All Are Welcome. It is number 414. 
So if you would please open your hymnals to All Are Welcome, number 414. Before we go on, a quick word about music recordings. Over 250 people braved an Ohio evening snowstorm to be with us for our conversation with Marty. We were also joined by the choir and instrumentalists of St. Michael the Archangel Parish, and everyone sang beautifully. But for consistency of sound and because we didn't sing all of the verses of each song, from this point forward, we're going to be using the official recordings of the songs we will discuss. That was the first time we got to say, so please open your hymnals to actual people. So that was, that was pretty cool. With actual hymnals. With actual hymnals, in fact, that's right. So usually when we uh, do our podcast, or uh, what many of you probably know as the radio show, um, Matt and I will have completed the interview oftentimes months prior to us actually editing together the episode. Uh, and then we call each other on our phones because Matt lives in Minnesota and I live in Maryland. And we each record ourselves talking to each other in our own separate, in our own separate places. And then through the magic of editing, Matt stitches together an episode for us and does his best to make us sound somewhat intelligent. 95% of what I say ends up in the episode. <laughs> and... And about 40% of what Zach says ends up in the episode. We joke about needing like an auto-tune, but for like wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the, one of the things that um, I think really makes our program work, really where the value in our content comes from is in the time that we spend with a composer or with an artist during the actual interview. And most of the time we interview composers when the three of us are in always in the same place. We've always done our interviews together, and usually at conferences. So normally when we do what we're about to do, there's only three people in the room. Um, so there are more than that this time. And so you'll, you'll hear a little bit of um, the, the conversational nature of, of our interviews. And, and eventually this conversation will be edited. You'll hear the introductions and things for an actual podcast episode. So when that comes out, you'll be able to see the difference between what we'll experience tonight in the same room all together and then what you'll hear in the final produced episode. So we have done an episode on that very song that we just sung, uh, All Are Welcome. But I think for the people gathered here, I would love if we started uh, Marty, if you would tell us a little bit about All Are Welcome. Well, I, I think I'd like to sort of preface it by just talking about writing in general, um, and then maybe I can get more specific. Um, over the years, I, as we were preparing this, we looked at the songs you're going to sing tonight are mainly old chestnuts. Um, a number of them were written several years before either Matt or Zach were born. <laughs> <laughs> so they're old, old songs. And I've observed over the years that my understanding of what I was doing when I'm writing and how I write has evolved. Um, I think in the early days when I first fell into a parish in 1973, uh, Franciscan Parish in Minneapolis, I wrote then because uh, there was some big holes in the repertoire. It was close enough to Vatican II that there was a need for a lot of music. 
And I didn't have, I had studied music, but I hadn't studied writing liturgical music, and they're very different. Um, I think that ministers of music are essentially, first of all, ministers of the word, uh, before they're ministers of music. It's, I think it's very easy to write songs, but very hard to write a good text. Uh, it's because to put words of faith on the lips of other people is a very either reckless thing to do, uh, because I believe deeply that what we sing changes us and forms us in our faith, for good or for ill. And for many years, I wrote from inside a parish. The songs we're going to sing tonight, most of them were written for next Sunday at the parish. I had to write for that. This was written about 1994, so it was after I had actually left a full-time parish job. And I was trying to get my arms around what I thought would fill holes in the repertoire, because now there's a whole lot of composers. Matt and Zach and Michael at the radio station have no trouble finding music. There's a lot of it out there. So you say, what might serve the people of God now? And at this time when I wrote this, I was remembering back, I had been studying the Gospel of Luke and how Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, we see there's a different Jesus in every Gospel. And in Luke, Jesus is the one who is always eating with the wrong people. <laughs> there's 19 banquets in Luke. And I was thinking about how Jesus ate with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and Jesus welcomed them all to his table. And I thought, what does that mean for us? How do we envision that? And it's interesting because so often when you have some space between the writing and the publishing and, and singing it again, you go back and say, oh, I wish I hadn't written that. Um, I actually wrote 14 verses for All Are Welcome. And you write a tune and then you, then you can't make it work. So the original one was, I took an old folk tune. Let us build a house where love can dwell and all can safely live. That's already been used, so I had to write a new tune. <laughs> but also, also I, I took the, the verses and spent time with them, and you worked with them and worked with them and worked with them until I could pare it down to five verses. And it sort of is the shape. If you look at the words gathering, word, meal, and then our mission as, as Christians. So that was more information than you wanted, probably. But. So you talked a lot about setting this text. Last night, for those of us who were here last night, um, Marty, myself, Matt, we all talked a lot about uh, the, the, what Scripture uh, does in our singing, in our music. So I wonder if you could expand on uh, more just like how you're setting Scripture now. Uh, it was interesting because when I went back and looked at these songs, a lot of the songs were due tonight I haven't played for 15 years. Uh, but uh, I went back to them and I realized how my writing has changed. And I think what changed them was a particular collection in 1982 when I did Psalms for the Church here with David Haas. And for the first time we were trying to write complete settings and be faithful to the psalm text. I'm very conscious that I am much on safer ground when I'm trying to write more directly from Scripture. So I've watched over the years as how I've tried to stick closer to Scripture and also rely more on other text writers because I just don't trust myself that often. Uh, but I think uh, Mark Twain famously said, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. And I think, <laughs> and I think that, that I, I agonize over every word now, and I think I, 
And I think this is true not just of people who write music, but those of us who prepare and lead worship. We have to really dive into the scriptures in a very deep way and spend time with them. If we're going to ask our communities to internalize these words, and it's very important, I think, I believe that music ministry is critically more important than ever, well, at least in my lifetime, because at times when the messages in the world are messages of division and alienation and fear, we need to give the messages of the gospel. Jesus saying, peace be with you. Jesus saying, do not be concerned with the things of this world. Love your enemies. Uh, we have an incredibly important message, and music is the way we can best convey that to ourselves and internalize it. So I would spend a lot more time with scripture now, just for my own spiritual journey as well, but also in the way I write. Uh, for most Roman Catholics, and I think Matt alluded to this last night, most of our scriptural awareness and formation comes through the songs we sing. I think people, well, you said this last night, most Roman Catholics could not recite the 91st Psalm, but you might know several verses of On Eagle's Wings, uh, which is the 91st Psalm. So I, I think scripture becomes more important to me as the years go on. So sticking, Marty, with, with the Psalms themselves, um, and specifically Psalm 23, could you share a little bit about the, um, the writing and the genesis of Shepherd Me, O God, and specifically, maybe how you came to that paraphrase of that psalm? Well, it's interesting that I, at the time I was trying to discern, once you get published in the Roman Catholic liturgical world, you get asked to do workshops, as if you had something to say. There's, a, there's an assumption that if you can write a song, you have something to say. And so I started getting invitations, and at some point I had to decide whether I was going to continue to try to be full-time in parish ministry. And so my wife and I and our two children took a sabbatical at a retreat center in the mountains. And uh, it was a small community in the winter of about 60 people. And every night we had evening prayer. And after evening prayer, there was so much snow that people would sit around and critique evening prayer and tell you what was wrong with it. And I got a commission to set the 23rd Psalm. And you, when you get the 23rd Psalm, or like David setting the Beatitudes, you don't want to try and set something that's so embedded in people's minds. So I, I struggled with it. And I struggled with it, and I struggled with it, and every night the congregation at evening prayer told me what was wrong with the setting I was doing. <laughs> and I realized part of the thing is I've never met a shepherd. It was hard to, my wife was the one who finally said, why don't you make it a verb? And, um, and then I, I realized, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then there's a verse about fear. And then there's the final verse about from death into life. And so the natural sequence sort of came out of that. And, uh, but I will say there were like 30 versions that I rejected, oh no, 10, before I got to that one. But it, it, no, it is a struggle. It, it, you try and make it sound effortless, but it was a lot of work. But if you look at the verses, and if you know the 23rd Psalm, and many of you do, I tried to stay as close as I could to the verses as possible, so that you would start to actually learn the psalm by singing. The other thing I wanted to talk about before we sang this is the profoundly relational experience of worship. When the priest says, the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Automatically people will say that. It's, it's a very short dialogical way, but all of worship is that way. The psalm is that way. The Eucharistic prayer and the acclamations, it's this back and forth. It's this wonderful relationship, and we believe that Christ's presence is with us in our relational worship. So I love singing the psalm in that way. We each have a voice. Shepherd me, O oh God, beyond my 
So we're going to stay with the scripture vein of thought here. Um, If you would turn, please, to page 461, or excuse me, song number 461, I Has Not Seen. And similarly, Marty, I'm wondering if you would share a little bit again about this approach to scripture, scripture paraphrase, but dealing specifically with this passage from Corinthians. My first job... um like I said, I was in a Franciscan parish, and the pastor, uh, Father Quentin Helene, was from Maslin, Ohio. He isn't too far from here. And uh, he hired me, um, well, it was sort of a compromise. I didn't know much about liturgy and music, and he wasn't paying much. So <laughs> it worked out well for both of us. Um, but he was one of the most gracious and pastoral and kind people I ever met. and. Uh, he was one of the presiders at our wedding. Uh, we had about four clergy at our wedding because they all wanted to preach. Uh, so. <laughs> but after he went back to Maslin, he got lung cancer. And he was very ill in, in the parish. We just felt kind of helpless. Uh, you know, it was far away. We couldn't be with him. And uh, the new pastor, who also was a wonderful man, Howard Hansen, Father Howard Hansen, was great. And we had a, a service of a prayer service for him before he had died. And this was the reading that Father Howard chose. First Corinthians 2, eyes not seen, ears not heard. And this is early days for me, 1980. So I can say that I stayed pretty close to the Corinthians text in the refrain, but then I just launched off into my own world in the verses, which is what I would not do today. But uh, when you're young and reckless, you do things, you know? But um, so it's, it's interesting because I think we, one of either Zach or Matt was last night talking about Bernadette Farrell who had written Christ Be Our Light for a very specific parish who had a very specific pastoral mission. And I can't sing this hymn without thinking of Father Quentin now. But each of people, and I said last night, somebody comes up to me up and tells me how Eagle's Wings is attached to them. And so we find music attaches in a very deep way to moments, to people, to experiences. And I think it's why it's so important that we music directors and writers get bored really fast, but our congregation still love to sing songs that take root in them. So this is one that has been around for a long time.
It's interesting thinking again about this scripture vein. I mean, last night we moved from talking about um, music we sing and scripture to then music we sing and how the texts that we sing specifically shape our theological or spiritual understanding. So the, the phrase that we used last night, um, I think it was in our interview with Rory Cooney, perhaps he used the first um, used the phrase first of homiletic texts. How do we go from setting scripture or paraphrases of scripture to texts that then shape our understanding? And it's, it's interesting to me, Marty, as you, you talk specifically about ayahs not seen, and, and though at least in the refrain it's a paraphrase of scripture, but you can't help but think about um, you know, the person for whom you wrote this piece, even in the way that we sing scripture and remember scripture through music, 
depending on when we've experienced that music in times in our life, there's also that homiletic experience that, that comes attached to that scripture also. And what I find interesting is that um, when I was writing, I, I worked for 12 years in two different Roman Catholic parishes, and during the entire time I was writing, I always had in my mind the faces and the stories of the people in that community. Ironically, it was the songs that were the most attached to certain people and certain experiences in certain communities that crossed over into a larger church, which I was asked to write a setting for a Lutheran hymnal, and I tried to imagine, I wasn't active in a Lutheran church, so I tried to imagine this vast, abstract church, and I couldn't write. I needed to have faces and stories. And ironically, you know, Michael Jonkis wrote on Eagle's Wings for one person for one event, but it crosses over and it touches so many people. I think there's always this incarnational aspect. Christ speaks to us through real people, real situations. And then when we write from that place, it crosses and we find Christ other places. And so when we talk about these homiletic texts or just songs that shape the way we think about God, songs that shape the way that we pray to God, uh, you talked a little bit last night about songs to God versus songs about God versus songs as God. I wonder if maybe you could talk about that again. I know a lot of people are here with us for the first night, but it'll, it'll kind of set up what I want to talk did about next. Did I talk next. about that last night? You did. <laughs> <laughs> that was so long ago. <laughs> well, oh no, I think I just talked about the first two categories. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I was talking about I, an encounter with a, a great theologian storyteller named Ed Hayes who said, don't write songs about God, write songs to God. And the song Gather Us In, which is always in second person, speaking to you. Um, as I always felt like uh, we're, we're talking, we're singing about God as though God were someplace else. Uh, so these very personal songs. I, I always think that it, the more I can sing as if I'm singing to God rather than singing about God. Because uh, everybody there is with me singing to God. We all know where we're here. At least I hope we do. Uh, should we talk about the next song? Yeah, let's, uh, if you would all please open your hymnal. I wanted to get to say it. Um, <laughs> if you would all please open your hymnal to number 494. Should be We Remember. Long, long time ago, I just... You know, I, I realized I needed to spend more time learning about the liturgy and the theology and scripture. So I decided to go back and get a master's at the University of St. Thomas. It took me nine years because um, I kept taking courses that weren't relevant. And finally, <laughs> I finally got out. But during the course of that, I went to a conference with a priest from Minneapolis named Jim Mudry, a really excellent priest. And he was talking about eschatology, which was a new concept to me. And he said, the Eucharistic prayer is an eschatological prayer. We remembering how Jesus asked us to do this in his memory. And yet we say Christ is present with us here, even as we remember. And then he says, but in the fullness of time, we look forward to that time. And that's all happening at once. And he encapsulated in Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. So we remember was a time... to be quite honest, I was trying to explain this to myself in my own words. So the refrain was simply saying, Christ has died. We remember how you loved us to your death. Christ is risen, and yet we celebrate for you are his, with us here. Christ will come again, and we believe. Uh, so that was where We Remember started.
yearning just to touch you and be healed. Gather all your people and hold them to your heart. We remember how you love us through your death, and still we Um, this was a, a good song, I think, to act as the hinge here between how we think about um, theology, spirituality, how the, the texts that we sing form us theologically and spiritually, but also how the texts that we sing form us ritually and help us prepare as we approach ritual moments. I know for myself with this song we remember, I remember being, I don't know, maybe 12, 13 years old singing this song at Mass and just realizing this is what we do. We're, we're singing about what we do. Right. And it seems so obvious, but I think if you're not tuned into that, it can pass you by. And so much of the music that we sing at Mass um, 
can be viewed almost as just filling time. You know, when it's, it's really so much more than that. Last night, we talked about how the music helps us to enter into the ritual action, not just accompanies the ritual action, but is our entryway into understanding deeper what it is that we're, what we're doing. And, and I think it's, and you don't have to turn back to it, but if you think about the text, all of the text or the verses of we remember, but especially verse four, as you think about again, um, animating that ritual action, our understanding of the ritual action, see the face of Christ revealed in every person standing by your side, gifts to one another and temples of your love, shapes a different way that we think about how we're formed together as community, we think about ourselves differently, but also um, within the ritual action that we're doing, we, we can't help but approach that with a different understanding when we framed this in seeing Christ in one another, standing side by side with those in the gathered assembly for that moment in the, in the liturgy. I've also, just quickly before we get to our next underlying topic area, I've always been struck by the singability of this melody, mm -hmm. the general singability of Marty's melodies in general. Uh, there's something about, I mean, obviously we all know this song, we've been singing it for, <laughs> for, for a while, but there's something about it that's so inviting to the voice, I think, uh, something that's intuitive, like it's a melody we've known in our hearts forever. I wonder, Marty, if you wouldn't mind talking just a little bit yeah. about your approach to melody. Well, I'm most comfortable at the piano. I can play guitar, but um, regardless of how I start writing a song, at some point I get up. In the old days, I'd get up and go for a run. Now I get up and go for a walk on the treadmill. <laughs> but I sing the melody over and over again in my head, away from an instrument, because the congregation doesn't have an instrument, and it has to work for somebody who just hears it and can sing it back. And usually, if I go for a 30-minute walk or run, and come home, the melody's changed, and it's gone where the voice wants to go. Uh, a lot of liturgical music, you can hear it without the instruments. It loses something. Uh, so I write typically folk music, a lot of very simple melodic melodies. Um, I mean, when I say melodic, I mean simple dive. Simple melodies that people, they, they almost sound insipid and banal, you know, like... Um, <laughs> but Did you write that? <laughs> Just now? If I could get the royalties on that, I would <laughs> But I mean, it, it's, it's, but it's, it's, it's the trick is to make it simple without being sappy. That's the trick, and sometimes you have to spend a lot of time. So, uh, yeah. Uh, it's interesting, congregations will tell you where they want to go. Uh, so in other words, when I worked in a parish full time, I inflicted new songs on a parish, and I'd always teach it a cappella, and then I'd know after mass whether the melody was working or not. And the way I say it is, you know, put the sidewalk where the people want to walk. Uh, with classical music, the composer can say, you have to play what I have in my head. With liturgical music, you have to play what they want to sing, uh, which is a different approach. That's something that in, in so many of our conversations with composers, both of the, the points that you were making, Marty, have been re-emphasized. The, um, the perhaps writing or from time to time sitting at the piano, but the importance of moving away from it. 
you know, not being dependent on writing at the piano. And then also, and I think in particular in our conversation with um, Father Fran O'Brien, who is pastor of a parish and a composer, so he really inflicts his community with his new compositions as the pastor. Um, but, but the ability to workshop something with an actual congregation, I, I would imagine it would be so hard to write liturgical music for someone who isn't plugged into or at least interacting with an actual singing, praying yeah, assembly. There's two, two big issues. One is where the congregation's voice wants to go, and the second one is where the text wants the melody to go. And, you know, um, I wrote a piece that goes, Be with me, Lord, when I am in trouble. And Michael Jonquist wrote, Be with me, Lord. Those both work. What wouldn't work was, Be with me, Lord. <laughs> Not with them, Lord. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have to. <laughs> Justin uh, mentioned that uh, I also uh, composed, and Marty was actually my real, like, I would say my first kind of teacher. I don't know if he'd want to take credit for it, <laughs> or perhaps you'll have to give him the blame. But really, like, my first teacher who like really demonstrated some methodical approaches to thinking about it. I remember two things specifically that I still do today from Marty, and that's when you think you've written the melody, rewrite it at least 10 more times just to see where else it could go, you know, and that's often yielded a lot of, a lot of results for me. I know, um, so if any of you, you probably aren't, and that's okay. Uh, my, my song, uh, God of Broken Hearts, has a melody in it, and it's, I still have the sheet of all the scribbles and the eraser marks of how many times um, I rewrote that melody uh, with Marty very much in my ear, in my mind, doing that. Uh, and, and the second one was uh, to compose or to try it out with people. You know, you have to see where the voices uh, want to go, and I think we, it's demonstrated by how well you're singing tonight. Um, thinking about, again, the, the singability of, of melody and, and this progression, you know, again, of, of scripture framing our theology, spirituality, and, and also the ritual. Um, I'm wondering, Marty, if there's anything else in, a, in addition on this topic of ritual music you'd like to add, and, and perhaps maybe you could talk specifically about your setting, the mass of creation. Yeah. Well, before I do that, I, one of the things I'd say, we don't think about musical form. You know, there's different forms, like Tazay form where you sing the same refrain over and over again is one kind of form. And, it, and another form is the hymn where everybody stands and just sings. And then there's the, a lot of songs with a chorus and a verse. And in ritual, in liturgy, musical form follows the function. In other words, if you're going to communion, you choose a very simple form so people can sing it. The psalm can be sung in many different forms, but each musical form, whether it's call and response, in oral cultures where you don't have printed music, there's all kinds of oral call and response music. And it's great music for processing to, uh, great music for going, and it's ironic because the four places that when I was starting to work in the Catholic Church, there was a four hymn sandwich, the opening hymn, the offertory hymn, the communion hymn, and the closing hymns, and they were all hymns. And what those four places has been common is the congregation is moving moving in, moving out, going, bringing up the gifts, going to communion, and the hymn is sort of antagonistic to that. So I think that's one of the things you think about. Um, mass parts, of course, have their own form. The Holy and the Gloria are the only two places in the Mass where you're just standing and singing a hymn. 
And of course, I'm gonna do a workshop in a couple months on, on scripture and music, and I was thinking about how the angels, when we sing in the mass, all the mass parts are taken right out of the Bible. We don't realize all the time we're singing scripture. Uh, holy, holy is the angels in the temple. The glory to God is the angels in the shepherds. The Alleluia is the angels at Revelation. The angels got all the best, best texts in the Bible. <laughs> so the holy, holy should feel that way. And, it, and one of the bumps about it is Mass of Creation, like other Masses that you probably had, got shifted around 2010. And that's when you realize how you want to live into these texts. And it's a speed bump when the texts change on something you know really well. My second parish, I walked into a parish where there was a priest who was very, very popular and a music group, uh, a folk group that had been there and a choir that had both been there for like 20 years with the same director. And they looked at me like, oh boy, what are you gonna, and first week I said, I'm gonna teach you a song called Taste and See. They said, oh, we know that, we love that. And I said, wow, I wrote that, oh, we love it. So I started to play it and they said, that's not how it goes. <laughs> What I wrote was, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. And they were going, taste and see the goodness. <laughs> but we had made a pact that we wouldn't change anything for a year, the pastor night. But the folk group had a mass by the St. Louis Jesuits. Holy, holy. And the choir had a mass by Richard Prue, Festiv Festival Eucharist. And so at the Holy Days, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, they divided and each got their own mass with their own mass parts. So I wrote Mass of Creation for that parish and it was why I deliberately wrote it for organ and for guitar. So I gave it to the choir and said, this is your new mass. Then I gave it to the folk group and said, this is your new mass. But then we could come together on the High Holy Days and sing together. And I told them, you're all going to sing the Triduum together. You're all going to Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, just because you're one community. Uh, and interestingly enough, another reason you know, that I think that it's successful, not because it's a great piece of music, but because it filled a need that was present in other parishes who were trying to find a common mass part for theirs. So it wasn't necessarily the greatest music, but maybe the most useful, functional music that finds a way into the repertoire. <laughs> Stand for this. <laughs> <laughs> Seated, you don't need to kneel, yeah. so you can be. The, <laughs> I wonder if you might just musically talk 
a little bit more about, and by the way, I, I think that was the first time I've actually ever heard you play Massive Creation. That was kind of, that was a bucket list moment for me. <laughs> Boy, you must get some, you have a very exciting I don't, <laughs> I don't get out too often. That's why I'm on a podcast. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about just how you conceived of writing for such varied instruments, um, mm. Like how the process to to meld these different genres. Well, it, part of it was I was raised in a church that had organ and hymns every Sunday, and my piano teacher was incapacitated when I was about a sophomore or junior. So I played organ in church every Sunday growing up, my senior, my junior, senior years, and I also was in a folk group. So I played guitar and. It was at my first parish where I realized I was the only music director who was being paid, so I had to play all these masses. And after a while, you know, you just get used to knowing how to do it. Interestingly, this is, this is probably too obscure, but I always like to think of uh, Handel's Messiah, where the strings hit a chord, and they just they sustain it. Oh, just let's play a D once. And the harpsichord has a very quick ictus, and then it dies away. So that the piano would be playing, go ahead and just hold it. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. So that's how the organ and the, and the guitar work together, is the guitar has the, the ictus and the organ sustains. And as long as they're sensitive, there's too many, back in my day, the organists would say, oh, those guitars, they can't read music, they don't know what to do. And the guitarists say, those organists are so stuck up, I can't possibly work with them. <laughs> and I had had to do both those things, so. This was great because one of my bucket list items was to hear Marty Haugen sing The Messiah. Yeah, so this well, that's, was, is all you're this was fantastic. This was great. I thought you were going to say if, it was to hear me play a D. <laughs> <laughs> our, next, our next piece will be The Sheep May Safely Graze. <laughs> I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you, I mean, you, you pointed out that we were glossing over the, the, um, the, the different musical styles and approaches because that's something that, I mean, what you describe about guitarists and organists, I mean, are sort of the, the sort of stereotypical debate. I mean, that's something that is very much still a conversation or an issue or a point of conflict. And I, and I think um, one of the things that we've tried to do, I think, in, in our podcast, um, particularly when we put together an episode, um, at the end of the episode, we, we feature something that's what, what's called the Open Your Hymnal podcast, or the Open Hymnal playlist, excuse me. And the playlist really was a function of our podcast being put on the radio. Because when you do a podcast and you just put it out on the internet, if it's 34 minutes or it's 42 minutes, it doesn't matter, but when you have the radio, it has to be the same time every single time. And so to fill that time, we, we started doing this playlist where we will play music by other composers that illustrate or extend part of the conversation or a thread from that, 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 um, that interview. And we've tried to represent a variety of musical styles, a variety of time periods, a variety of approaches to composition. And um, the, the, some people call it the style wars, people have different ways of referring to it. But I hope that for, for those of you here, how, whatever music style speaks to you um, as a person of faith, I mean, I think, I, I hope we understand also where we can see that beyond the instrument that a piece is played on, or be, beyond aesthetics, both of which are really important, 
the importance of how text shapes us or how it accompanies a ritual moment or its singability or the pastoral considerations of a song are super important. There are songs that are quote unquote contemporary that the text is not good or they're not singable. And there are songs that have been around for a long time that are traditional organ-based pieces where the text doesn't necessarily speak to us or it's not pastorally appropriate for what we're doing. And so, I mean, a lot of these considerations as we think about music and what's important should transcend style. Style should be a part of it. But these other things we're discussing really are, are what's at the heart of the matter. Also, I, I'm aware that we get into big arguments about the instruments. You know, right. what, and it's important to remember that for more than half the time that there's been a Christian church, there were no instruments. There were, the organ didn't show up till 11 or 1200. And the, before that, there was no instruments and there was no hymnals. There were no missalettes. People just sang. Uh, there's something about remembering that and getting back to the, just the pure sound of people praying in song unaccompanied. It's really beautiful. I also want to thank uh, the work of Michael Roberts and Living Bread Radio for launching this new great Catholic music uh, website and app that you can download that's celebrating all of this music uh, across style, across genre, many different instruments. Um, and uh, you'll, you'll hear much of the same through the Open Your Hymnal podcast. Uh, we're getting close to wrapping up here. Before we go, I mean, um, we, both Zach and I really want to thank Marty for being here um, and, and spending last night with us tonight and then also tomorrow night. It, personally, it's just really a joy. We, we would not literally be here for this mission or with this program if it wasn't for the kind support of Marty. So we're very grateful, very grateful to, to Marty for, for all of that. I want to thank uh, St. Michael the Archangel, Libby and Justin, and all the musicians, singers and instrumentalists, and Father Don King for being so gracious hosts to us, too. Absolutely. Really this is written for my first Franciscan parish. They had a stained glass window with uh, Brother, Son, and Sister Moon Francis's canticle. And um, I had just come off my first Easter vigil. It was Easter Sunday morning. I had done 12 liturgies in the last four days, and I was exhausted. And as I came out the door, a snow goose flew over the roof of my house and I rarely have moments like this but the first two lines came to me then however things change and this is where the I learned over time the original text I had was praise to the sun praise to the wind and somebody pointed out to me that that was heresy <laughs> <laughs> but even the change praise for the sun is not correct because Francis Saint Francis said praise to you O God through Brother, son. So I hope I didn't wreck the song for you by that way, but because that's it should be praise to God through that. But I, there was I couldn't get all the words in. Anyway. Carries the light of the Lord in his rays, the moon and the stars who light up the way unto your throne. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and all creation is shouting for joy. Come dance in the forest, come play in the fields. 
for the rain that waters our fields and blesses our crops so all the earth yields from death unto life her mystery revealed springs forth in joy Thank you for listening to Open Your Hymnal, and special thanks to Marty Haugen for speaking with us. All of the songs you heard are produced by GIA Publications. Links to these songs and additional resources can be found at our website, openyourhymnal.com. Production assistance and support for this episode was provided by GIA Publications, Justin Hike, Libby Sexton, Father Don King, and the Living Bread Radio Network. Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and Google Play. For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Matt Reichert. And I'm Zach Stahowski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Open Your Hymnal. All content of this episode is property of Look Up Here Productions or its content suppliers and is protected by United States and international copyright law. For more information about this show and its use, please visit OpenYourHymnal.com. Open Your Hymnal.